Welcome to Literary Friction. I'm Octavia Bright here with you and it's a beautiful sunny morning. Hi Carrie, how are you doing? Hi Octavia, I'm doing well. I love you so much, but I kind of wish I was outside. (laughs) (laughs) Me too. Me too. I actually was thinking this morning, like I used to do this with my students when I was uh, teaching in universities. In the summer, I'd be like, we're going to do our seminars outside. And it got me so much kudos, which was great. But also it was better for me. It's so nice. But we can't record outside because there's too many noises. No, yeah, it it wouldn't work. There would be lots of blowing on the microphone too. So much incredibly blowing, incredibly annoying. And also my neighbors are having quite a rowdy breakfast in their garden next door. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it was nice to see you in person. Oh, the other yeah. Week. We went to an event together in Clark and Well, and then we went out for dinner afterwards. And it was a warm evening, and we sat outside, and I just felt like ladies in the city. It was it lovely. Was. It was a real ladies in the city moment. We got chatted <laughs> out by a couple of drunk men, which was a shame, but apart from that... <laughs> mm, yeah, that was a shame. Although it was like, I couldn't tell at first whether they were chatting us up. Yeah. And then he admitted that he was chatting us up at the end. I know. It was a strange move, but it anyway. It was such a strange move, <laughs> and yeah, wrong. He really did not read the vibe. No. I would say. No, they never do though, do they? No, they never do, idiots. <laughs> How are you? <laughs> I'm good. I'm good. I'm actually really busy with work at the moment, which is nice. As all freelancers know, it feels good, but it's also pretty intense. And not least actually because I'm delivering my manuscript to my publisher at the end of July. So I'm kind of cranking up into serious head down delivery mode, which is very exciting, but also absolutely terrifying. And, uh, you know, the thing with deadlines that you kind of, hate them mostly but then sometimes love them because like when you're at the right stage and especially in like a long project they really suddenly get the job done but they're at the wrong stage it can be really oppressive but I'm basically as of last week entering this phase where I'm a streamlined machine I'm like up at six at my desk at 6 15 just like bam 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 running a little bit hurting my foot so not anymore (laughs) but trying and there's some like deep pleasure I always find in those really intensely focused periods of my life and I'm especially doing like long long-term writing projects there's the thrill of it but it's also you give up a lot so it's kind of a weird balance and it's reminding me of the last phase of my thesis as well where I became this weird sort of creature <laughs> just like <laughs> didn't really live in reality anymore but I felt amazing but it's kind of a mania for me it always tips into a bit of a mania so I have to be a little careful but yeah you guys might not hear from me for a while well I'll just keep checking in on you (laughs) for the best but before we get into it let's get business out of the way if you like you can support us on patreon by subscribing at patreon.com slash lit friction you'll also get access to an extra minisode each month there are now 15 waiting for you there and have the chance to suggest themes That's right. And also a quick reminder about merch. We've made another run of our excellently sturdy LF tote bags available. And this time the price is a little bit discounted because life is only getting more expensive. Thanks, Tories. So we're also now selling them on a different platform. They're now on Shopify. The link is in our socials and also in the show notes. So get them while they're hot. Yes, they're very hot. They are very hot. And there's a further 20% special discount for patrons on top of the discount. So if you're not already a patron, then you can sign up at the link in the show notes. And if you do that, then you will get access to a special discount code on the Patreon. So hit hit us up there um, and, and enjoy. 
This month's Patreon episode will be released in a week's time, and the theme is the essay, which was recommended by one of our patrons. Patrons, thank you as ever for your wonderful support. It is the reason we can keep making the show. So thank you, thank you, thank you. But now back to Minnesota 31. Welcome and thanks for tuning in. The format for these minisodes between full shows is, for the next half hour-ish, we'll first have an informal conversation about the topic in hand and anything else that might come up, and then recommend some cultural things that we've enjoyed lately. I love it when you do that bit. I kind of, it's like being on an airplane when they do the like, the exits are here, here, and here. <laughs> I yeah, I really into slip it. into a weird voice there. <laughs> I love it so much. It means we're about to start. It's like, it's good. And we are. So spring is really <laughs> happening. The flowers are out. We have all swapped our coats for jackets here in the Northern Hemisphere. I mean, even the rain is more tolerable, right? Because everything smells so good just after because the blossoms are all out and the whole city just smells gorgeous. And there's optimism in the air. I keep thinking of um, Yara Rodriguez Fowler's poem, which is dedicated to all the girls of summer when they come. It's an amazing piece of writing and it's all about how gorgeous all the girls are when they come out in their fabulous summery clothes. I've been feeling that. And all of this aliveness has made us think about parties because parties are great and there haven't been enough of them in our lives recently for obvious reasons. So we thought that we would dedicate a mini-sode to them in the hope that as the weather warms up even more, there's just, there's going to be parties, outside parties, inside parties, parties. And I want to start by hearing all about your ideal party, Carrie Plitt. Is it dinner? Is it dancing? Is there like a giant sound system or a bouncy castle? Are there balloons? Are there cakes? Like what are the ingredients that make a party great for you? I think there are lots of different types of parties that I love. Love a good dinner party. Love just like a rave within reason. Love an outdoor <laughs> picnic. You know, I like I take take me to a party. I'll, I'll enjoy it. But I think the thing that makes it the ideal party is the people. So are they fun? Are they interesting to talk to if you can indeed talk to them? Are they up for a good time? Do you want to be in their presence? Do you feel safe and secure and excited? And even if it's a lot of people you don't know yet, like the vibe just has to be there. And that totally depends on the people. And I really think if you have a bunch of great people, you can have a party in a dumpster and it will be fun. You know, (laughs) (laughs) but I do love dancing. I love dancing. You know, if there's dancing at a party, I'll usually enjoy it. That's why I love weddings. I love dancing at a wedding. I feel like weddings open people up to dance who don't usually dance. And that's always really fun. Like I love the age spread at weddings where it's like little kids dancing with grandmas and all in between. I think food is really important. A good food spread goes a long way. Love a good house party. Miss those. I've always felt that at house parties that there you have that like intimate feel and also just the feeling that anything could happen. You know, it, it yeah. feels more dangerous and exciting. And canapes are great. That gets back to the food. <laughs> Such a fun concept. Canapes. Little, little things, little pieces of food you can just pick up off a plate. It's great. Yeah, they are great. And actually... I think that there should be more canopies at house parties. I'm just going to say, I think that's a mix I could get behind. Like some grubby student house party with volumont. I'm into it. Yeah. <laughs> that brings me to a story I want to tell you, which is I think one of my favorite parties I've ever had was my 24th birthday party when I was still a student. And it was at a club called Passing Clouds in Hackney. And um, my friend Chris worked there at the time. And my friend Ben, who is an amazing cook, 
was literally the guy who was a student making canapes. <laughs> Ever since I met him was when we were 18, starting at university, he was making like this extraordinary food all the time. And for my birthday that year, he was like, I'm going to do some canapes for the party. So we had the room upstairs for the first bit and Ben shows up with these extraordinary little canapes, like shot glasses full of fresh gazpacho and like cold pea soup. And then I think he made some mushroom volivants. I'm not kidding. Wow. And um, we had the upstairs for hanging out. And then we just went down and joined the club night downstairs, which had this incredible live band. And we danced till dawn and it was absolutely perfect. And the reason it was perfect is that all of the best ingredients had nothing to do with me at all. <laughs> like the band was not my choice. The canapes were made by my dear friend and I just got to show up with, with the people I loved and it was just glorious. And at that stage of life when no one really had any commitments. So there was that crackling feeling of possibility. And the venue was, uh, anyone who remembers passing, that's just a really fantastic venue. Yeah, that sounds incredible. It was wonderful. It was wonderful. I mean, and the other thing is because I'm born in the summer, if I have parties, they often have an outside contingent, which is one of my favorite things about parties. Like I love parties that happen both inside and outside and have that sense of like rambling, you know, like when you're in a really busy party and you sneak outside for a cigarette or a snog or like, I don't know, whatever you want to do. And you have that contrast between being outside your ears ringing from the music inside, but it's all quiet and you feel the cool air in your skin, but it's warm and you can go back inside and dance again and then come outside. again. I just, I love it. And I also think, you know, temporality is important. My dream party is a long party, but it's not a too long party. Like I love a party that goes till 5am, but not if it started at 1pm, you know? Mm. And I think that's the thing that's hard about weddings often, traditional weddings anyway, because they do tend to start quite early in the day. And by the time you get through it, especially if people have started drinking early. People are already hung over and they're not that fun anymore. <laughs> yeah. Oh my God. The British wedding. I have been to some long ass weddings and they have these like periods of time that they try to define in the schedule as like cocktail hour, but it's actually just two hours of standing. Around. Yeah. It's like baggy, like, baggy time. Yeah. The weather isn't nice enough for you to be outside, but you have to be outside. And so you're all kind of freezing and you haven't been given any food yet. And so then you just start drinking. And yeah, it is interminable. I agree. It can get intense. I think that's also the time where like, yeah. it's not warm yeah. enough and yet everyone still gets sunburned. <laughs> I feel like I've been to some, especially when I was a kid, like traditional weddings where by 7pm when everyone's finally sitting down to dinner, everyone's drunk and crotchety and sunburned and like <laughs> not in a place of much goodwill. <laughs> and then they just criticize the food. I mean, it's, it's whatever, but yeah, that's my, <laughs> that's my, my ideal party is probably a summertime party. Although listen, I love parties in the winter too, but I need access to an outside area. So if you're going to have a winter party, can we please have some like environmentally friendly heaters outside? Yeah. <laughs> blanket? yeah. I, I'm a winter baby and this has always been a great sadness of my life because I also love outside parties and outside activities. Like yeah. I would totally have had like sports parties. Oh my God, Carrie, I would never come. I'm sorry. <laughs> I just wouldn't come. I just, the competition is like the least fun idea in my mind. So the thought that you would do it for pleasure is like wild <laughs> to me. It's a necessary evil in life that I sometimes have to navigate. But if I could live free from any feeling of competition, I would love it. It makes me feel very oppressed and sad. You could come for the drinks after. Okay, thanks. <laughs> 
But actually talking about that, because for me, that a sports party would be a bad party, I have to say. So I want to think about bad parties. Like what makes a party bad for you? Well, again, I'm coming back to the people. The bad parties I've been to, the thing that unites them is that the people sucked. And again, that's like... (laughs) Who's were they? (laughs) (laughs) I shall not say. But it's the vibe again. I find like incredibly stuffy parties are really tough sometimes because nobody is letting loose, which is the whole point of a party. You know, it's like, it's partially about, you know, you're, you're in a kind of formal setting, but then you're, you're going a little bit wild. And then the other thing we touched upon this already, but if there's not food at a party, it's almost always a disaster because people drink too much and then they go crazy. Yeah. 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 I and mean, that was a big lesson my mom taught me when I was young. She just said, if you're going to have parties or gatherings or whatever, just make sure you have enough food and then things will rarely boil over into chaos and drama. <laughs> but if you don't feed people, chaos and drama are like a hundred percent guaranteed basically. Yeah. And I also personally just hate that feeling of having had like two glasses of wine on an empty stomach after a day of work. It makes me feel crazy and not mm-hmm. in a good way. I don't feel relaxed at all. I just feel like discombobulated and scared. I mean, you're speaking to a recovering alcoholic, so I don't really identify with that. (laughs) (laughs) But I hear hear about it. (laughs) How about you? Yeah, I think stuffiness and pretension are the things that kill a party for me. And some of the worst parties I've been to are the ones where everyone's just there to show off or something. Like, I think for me, a party that is cliquey is no fun at all. I hate cliques. I hate clubs. I just, I hate all of that stuff. And occasionally I've gone to them where there's like a real kind of feeling that everyone is trying to be cool and it stops people from just having fun. And actually the people I've always thought are the coolest are the people who are just kind and friendly and fun and having a good time, which is, I know, a deeply earnest thing to say, but I'm really allergic to cliqueiness. I think, you know, like everyone or like most people, who were not born enlightened. I engaged in it when I was a teenager and younger. And it's one of the reasons I hate it so much because I know how corrupting it is of people's better nature, basically. So yeah, I'm the same as you in that. I think it's good parties are places where people can just drop their bundle and relax. And like, I don't need to know what your grade point average was. I don't need to know how great your job is. Like, let's just talk about, you know, I mean, small talk is actually something I'm allergic to. So any parties that involve small talk, I struggle with. I much prefer when you just kind of click together and talk about other stuff. But also when I was preparing for this show, I was Googling around like house parties and stuff. And um, I thought this was super interesting. I found this article called Top 10 House Parties in Fiction, which listeners gives you a clue that we are about to get on to talking about some literature. (laughs) Maybe. (laughs) Maybe. And it's written by David Leavitt and written for The Guardian in 2020. So peak pandemic when, as he puts it in the article, parties of any kind were a wistful memory. And he described that the term house party, I think he's American, by the way, has this very English upper class connotation as being a thing that happens in someone's huge mansion where everyone is essentially trapped and is staying over and things can go awry, obviously, because people reveal how dreadful they are over the course of their like 24 hours. And one of the examples he cites is the party in France in Sally Rooney's novel Conversations with Friends where, you know, things get pretty tense. And then there's also a party in the novel Transit by Rachel Cusk, which I haven't read, but he describes as being like amazing observation in how people just descend to like the lowest versions of themselves in these uh, circumstances. So yeah, I just think it's funny because I think for you and me, like what you were describing earlier, like a house party is a place where 
everyone lets really fucking loose and like maybe it's like in a grubby young people's house where it doesn't matter if you spill a drink and stuff yeah, like, like that the toilet gets ripped out of the right the <laughs> exactly and, like someone climbs through the window and ruins the neighbor's flower beds and like you have to deal with it in the morning and take them some chocolates to say sorry or whatever right like whatever the fuck cigarettes out in uh bowls of crisps and stuff like that but um actually there is a more refined reading of the term <laughs> But do you like reading about parties? Like, can you think of any really great party scenes in books that come to mind when you think about this theme? Yeah, I do like reading about them. And I think parties in books are a really excellent way of moving plot forward and also just having interesting interactions between people happen, which is so much of what fiction is, isn't it? And I think that the really interesting dramatic thing about parties is there's such a collision of the public and private, right? Because Mm. you're having these intimate moments with people and you're probably, you know, you're letting your guard down as we talked about. And, you know, maybe you're drinking a little bit and going a little crazy and doing something, you know, kind of private that you wouldn't necessarily show people, but it's in this public forum. And so I think that a lot of really great party scenes in fiction are dealing with that clash of the public and private. Such a good point. So I know you don't love her, but I think Jane Austen is actually the master (laughs) of the party scene. (laughs) Listen, I will give you that. I think that's true. I just don't love reading it. But yes, you're right. She is. Because she was this extraordinary social observer, right? Exactly. And she really understands that clash of the public and private and the way, you know, gossip spreads at parties, Mm. the way you're on display at a party, the way that party is the vehicle for romance and conflict. And also it makes you think about, okay, how did parties start? Like a lot of it was about kind of presenting young women for the marriage market, which is its (laughs) whole thing. I mean, some parties are still like that, man, honestly. Mm. Yeah, it's true. And it's like, and that's part of the fun of parties, right? To like, go and be like, put on your best lipstick and go and be on display a little bit. You know, there's a thrill in that. But there's also a dark side to that, as you say. But anyway, I remember reading Pride and Prejudice and just being so excited for the Netherfield ball, you know? (laughs) Yes. (laughs) I was also thinking about the amazing party scene in The Remains of the Day. Mm. by Ishiguro, where Stevens the Butler is describing... You fucking love Stevens the Butler. <laughs> it's an amazing novel. I think it's one of the best novels. I think it's like your Master Margarita, like it comes up <laughs> so often. That's so lame. <laughs> <laughs> so Stevens the Butler, he lets loose on the dance floor, is that what no. happens? No, he could never let loose on the dance floor because he's stuck in his devotion to butlering to his own detriment. But I think it's cool. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yes. Sorry. Okay, let's put that to one side. Stevens in Remains of the Day, he's describing how he's perfectly facilitating this party that's happening at the great house where he's the butler, but also his father is dying at the same time. And he's constantly going back between his father dying and the party happening. And he describes this as a triumph, but also like the reader, we just see the great sadness of this, right? That he's so distracted by his life of service that he isn't fully focused on his dying father. Mm, Heartbreaking. But the party is the perfect way to show that. And then I was also thinking of like, speaking of the English party, which I seem to be using as my examples, Assembly by Natasha Brown, which is a skewering of <laughs> the the house party in the way that you described it. She goes to this fancy garden party that her white boyfriend 
parents are throwing. And it just is the perfect way to show how British society has rendered this character an absolute outsider. And the party is like full of signs and signifiers of class and wealth and privilege. And it's also no fun. Yes. <laughs> That's the thing that I was like, she she perfectly describes that, that these like stuffy, f- posh garden parties, when they abide by those structures, they're just no fucking fun. Yes. It does not seem fun in that book, certainly. No. How about you? What were you thinking about? Well, my first one that came to mind right away was White Teeth by Zadie Smith, which opens with this character, Archie Jones. It's 1975, and he had been about to commit suicide, and he decides not to go through with it. So he's filled with this exhilarating new commitment to living, and he passes a commune having a big party. And he does this thing that like, I think most people dream of doing, and very few people actually do, which is you pass a party just happening around you and you just go in. <laughs> you just walk in off the street. And so he does because he, you know, which is also, by the way, very out of character for him, but because he's in this kind of altered state, having survived his near-death experience, he goes into this party and it turns out it's an end of the world party. Sounds like a really fun house party. He ends up meeting Clara, who becomes his wife, and she's completely different from him. And it's in a way, it's like the uh party fantasy because he walks in with zero expectations. He encounters this totally new scene. He has an amazing time and he finds love with somebody he would never have crossed paths with if he hadn't taken this chance and gone to this party. And I can think like the myth of the party is always that, isn't it? Because it's this potential to meet an enormous number of new people or to make even just one new connection that you wouldn't make if you didn't go. And I can think so often about like, well, like John, my partner and I have this because we've known a lot of people in common up pretty much our whole lives without realizing. And when we got together, we were kind of figuring out that there were like three different parties that if we'd both gone, we would have met <laughs> in the five years before we actually did. But also it wouldn't have been the right time because we were either with other people or concerned with other things. So, you know, thinking like that gives you a sense that the parties hold the, the potential of life-changing magic, which I think is quite an exciting thing. And in this novel, that's precisely what happens. But the other example I had puts parties in a slightly different light, I guess. I mean, it's Vile Bodies by Evelyn Waugh, which I haven't read for years, but I have read a couple of times um, and loved. I mean, he wrote such brilliantly mordant social satire. And this one in particular has always been one of my favorites because I think because of the journey it goes on within the narrative, it starts off kind of full of hijinks but actually where it ends is pretty bleak. And he always said that was partly to do with the fact that in the course of writing it, his marriage fell apart. So he himself was in a completely different emotional space when he was writing the second half as opposed to the first. But also to me, the shape of that story just feels like the shape of a party. You know, you arrive full of optimism and maybe you have some fun at the start, but then by the end, it can end in in a bleak place, you know? So Yeah, it's fantastic. But there's not a specific scene so much as the whole milieu of the book. So it was published in 1930. And it's kind of making fun of the it kids of that generation, the bright young things um, who all very wealthy, very privileged um, partying in London after the end of the First World War. So they're kind of filled with this almost manic need to live and the kind of weird post-traumatic repression that happens and the frenzy that enjoying yourself can take on when you have lived through something extremely terrifying. But also what he's doing is over the course of the book, just showing 
how morally bankrupt these people often are. And um, so one character, Lady Margot Metroland, actually is basically a people trafficker. <laughs> and she's trafficking people to Latin America while she's having a fabulous time at all these very lavish parties. And uh, I think it really is a brilliant example of how parties can be used to maintain and sustain closed social groups. And, you know, the utopian idea of a party is that it opens your horizons, it broadens your horizons, and it introduces you to people you wouldn't meet otherwise. But there's this other side of it where it can be just used to cement power and privilege in a really kind of grim way. But do you think that the things that make parties great in real life are the same things that make parties great in books? Good question. I think any kind of party can be good in a book if it's written about in an interesting way. And maybe a very miserable party could be very funny or emotionally moving or a kind of narrative turning point in a book in a way that it's not actually fun to be at in real life. (laughs) So I would say no. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think that's true. I mean, like I was thinking about the parties that Brett Easton Ellis writes, for example, which are just not the kind of parties I want to go to, (laughs) but they make very compelling literature in that rubbernecky kind of way. And as you said, like, Nothing beats a party scene for showing characters in a different light, like at their most kind of venal, unkind or debaucherous, right? And as you said before, like things that people don't normally show in their daily lives. So it can be a good way to bring a healthy amount of chaos into a story, which I think readers always enjoy. (laughs) Can you think of a particular party in a book that you would really like to be able to go to? I'd just like to buttle like Stevens. (laughs) 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 It's my party apotheosis. No, I'm just kidding. I think this is probably a very basic answer, but it would actually be very fun to go to one of Jay Gatsby's parties in The Great Gatsby. Yeah. With the champagne and the dancers and the bands and it's during Prohibition. So it all feels kind of sneaky and dangerous. And I don't know, the way that Fitzgerald describes those parties makes me just want to be in the midst of them and maybe not be the like sad Gatsby character within them, but just like a, you know, side character who comes and has a great evening and then leaves the narrative before it all gets dark and everyone dies. (laughs) (laughs) Right. You do not want to be the main character at the Gatsby party. (laughs) No. (laughs) How about you? Well, actually, I really do want to be the main character at the party I'm about to describe. And basically, because you had Remains of the Day, I, of course, am having Master and Margarita. Excellent. Great. (laughs) (laughs) So the ball scene at the end of this book is just, it is one of those scenes from a book that has remained vivid in my mind ever since I first encountered it, really an extremely long time ago, because it's described so perfectly and so vividly. But also, I think it's one of the only party scenes that I could recall anyway, that describes a very elaborate preparation as well, which of course is a big part of parties, right? They're getting ready. And like, I think the different ways you relate to getting ready at different times in your life, like when when you're young, especially among the young women I know, girls would all get together and get ready together and share makeup and do each other's hair and all that kind of thing, which is not something that happens in my life so much anymore. But it's one of those things about weddings that can be actually fun, right? A callback to that because you tend to be in a group with people. In this book, it's not quite as innocent as that because Margarita has to be doused in blood and rose oil before she goes to this party. And this party, it's kind of the end of the world party to end all end of the world parties because the guy throwing it is the devil. So his name in the in the narrative is Voland, but he is the devil. And the party is basically 
when the gates from hell essentially open for a night and all of the criminals and murderers and terrible people who live in hell are allowed to crawl out of their coffins and pass through into the fourth and fifth dimension, which Voland controls. And as they pass through into the dimension, they suddenly become beautiful party guests in incredible outfits. And it's this big ball. And Margarita is brought there to be the queen of the night, essentially. And so she's crowned in this diamond diadem and these golden slippers. And she has to shake hands with all of these people and greet them all. And it's deeply exhausting. But the way that Bulgakov describes this scene, it's just so you can feel it and smell it. Like there's a wall of tulips and he describes jets of champagne and an orchestra of 150 musicians. 150, can you imagine? And at one point they get turned into animals. (laughs) So 150 animals playing instruments and the party is just wildly hedonistic and lavish. And it kind of plays on that idea that like, would you rather go to a party with everyone who ended up in heaven or everyone who ended up in hell? It's this like phenomenal scene and Behemoth, the talking cat, is there running events. I've confessed my love for him before on the show. If you haven't heard that episode, just FYI, I'm in love with this cat. He's a big talking cat and he kind of represents the spirit of mischief. So you've just got this like fabulous setting, phenomenal outfits, questionable guests and extraordinary, extraordinary writing, but also at the end of the scene, what you're left reflecting on is basically that it's an allegory for the nature of evil and our attraction and revulsion when it comes to evil. So yeah, it's phenomenal. If you haven't read it, do read it. (laughs) I have, but I don't remember that scene at all, weirdly. Wow. Fascinating. Yeah. (laughs) Fascinating. (laughs) I started using rose oil after reading it when I was in my teens and I continue to to this day. I do not, however, douse myself in blood before I go to parties. (laughs) What about, I asked you to think of this before, what about two fictional characters who you would invite to your party? Yeah, I struggled with this for some reason. I think because a lot of my favorite fictional characters are not necessarily people I want to like dance with you know because you like people who are deeply worthy yeah (laughs) no (laughs) I like people who are complicated what's your girl from Middlemarch you don't want to party with her (laughs) yes I did think about Dorothea and I was like she'd be terrible at a party (laughs) (laughs) but I just read Great Circle by Maggie Shipstead and there's a character named Ruth who the protagonist Marion meets when they're both airline pilots during the Second World War in London. And she becomes friends with Ruth and eventual lovers with Ruth. And Ruth is just like this amazing character. She's a pilot. She's independent. She's feisty. She loves going out. She like kind of brings Marion out into the world. And you just get the sense that she would be a great, well, she would be great fun at a party, but she would also be an excellent ally, you know, Mm -hmm. like somebody who's there to support you and facilitate your fun rather than doing their own thing or right, like she'll hold your hand through your first acid trip kind of thing. So make sure that you've got all the things on hand that you're gonna need to ensure a smooth experience. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Love those friends. Your guide. (laughs) She's your guide through the underworld. Um so Ruth. (laughs) And then um this character would not guide you through your acid trip, but <laughs> I, was th- I was thinking about Sally Bowles um, from Cabaret. <laughs> she would not. <laughs> uh, who, of course, she was. She first appears in Christopher Isherwood's Goodbye to Berlin, which is what Cabaret is based upon, which I have not read, but I do know Cabaret, the musical. And there's a great, obviously a great sadness to Sally and 
total denial of what's happening in her own world, but also in the greater world in the Weimar Republic. But she is just so much fun. Like at the party, she'd be dancing, she'd be singing, she'd be doing her cabaret, and it would be great. So Sally, you can come to my party. (laughs) (laughs) How about you? The first example that came to mind was, it's kind of a double example, but it's Paul from Andrea Lawler's book, Paul Takes the Form of a Mortal Girl. And Virginia Woolf's Orlando, because I want to introduce them. I would love to have a party where Orlando and Paul are both there because Paul is not based on Orlando, but the narratives are kind of parallel narratives in a way. Like they both are characters who can gender switch at will and who experience life in this kind of amazing duality of gender. And they both have a lot of sex and they are like lovers, like kind of Casanova style lovers, but much more complex than that. And without the blatant misogyny of that whole deal. But they also like, they are sensual. Both of them are are sensual characters who are interested in like the sensual pleasures of life, which I think is a great thing at a party because a good party really allows you to explore your different sensual pleasures. And both of them are very smart and interesting. And I would love to meet them, like see them meet and be there and watch them bounce off each other. Do you know what I mean? Mm. Another character who I actually just find myself thinking of quite often because I loved her so much, Reno from Rachel Kushner's novel, The Flamethrowers, because that woman knows how to party, but also she would have her fucking amazing fast motorbike, which we could bail on if stuff got boring. But I feel like, yeah, we would go to a party together. We'd have a really good time. And then you just have to catch her eye across the room and she would know exactly what you meant. And it would be time to get out of here. This is getting boring. And you just hop on her motorbike and ride off into the sunset, which just sounds Mm. dreamy as hell to me. And then my last one is actually an entire novel of characters, (laughs) but it's basically all of the characters from Sarah Winman's Still Life, but they have to all be there. Like, I just want to have a party with that group of people because they are so alive to me in that book and so fun and so kind of together in their pursuit of good feelings and real feelings, you know, and they love a good knees that around the piano. One of them is a great pianist, one of them is a great singer. And I just, I think it would be a cracking party. Totally agree with that. I loved those scenes when they were all in the pub together. And my, my last question for you is what about writers? Like they have to not be anyone that you know personally and let's not have anyone we've had on the show. So that's, that's the stipulation. But can you think of a couple of writers who you would have at your party? This is too bad because Octavia Bright, the writer, oh was top of my list. Stop it. <laughs> You're really fun at parties. Thanks, darling. So are you. Um, oh, thank you. I try to be. <laughs> Especially um, if there's a karaoke machine. Yes, I I do love a good bit of karaoke. <laughs> that is true. But yes, so two two writers I was thinking of. First one, Tolstoy. Mm, um, and this is this is solely based upon this entry that goes around Twitter once in a while from his diary, which makes it very clear to me that the man liked to have a good time. So so the diary entry is from the twenty fifth of January, eighteen fifty one, and it just reads, "I've fallen in love, or imagine that I have." went to a party and lost my head, bought a horse that I don't need at all. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God. I'm actually crying. I'm actually weeping. (laughs) I love, I love the idea of him just like losing his head at a party and buying a horse. It makes me so happy. That is absolutely incredible because also honestly, up until the horse part, that could have been a line from my own diary. (laughs) 
Maybe you should start purchasing horses. Holy hell, that is absolutely amazing. It's so great. So anyway, yeah, Tolstoy. Leo. He can get in. (laughs) (laughs) And then Toni Morrison. And again, this is just based on one piece of evidence. But there's this series of photographs of her dancing joyfully at a party, which you you can Google. Just Google like Toni Morrison dancing. And she just looks so happy and joyful. And I'm like, I want to dance with Toni Morrison. She clearly knew how to have a good time. I bet. How about you? Well, the ones that came to mind, my first one, maybe partly because her book was at Eyeline in my um, shelves, but Leonora Carrington, who was an artist and a writer, and she wrote these completely wonderful, surreal short stories. But from what I know of her life, she lived in Mexico most of her life and she took partying pretty seriously. And she made these extraordinary masks and all kinds of things, just a deeply, deeply creative person. And I think that she would want to make an amazing costume with you. And, you know, I would like to go to like Mardi Gras in New Orleans with Leonora Carrington. <laughs> I think that that would be the best way to party with her. Or um, I can imagine she'd be very interested in kind of a ritual before getting, you know, while getting ready, but some like elevating it to some kind of amazing alternate headspace. I just, yeah, I think she would be fantastic. I like the idea of that in principle, but I feel like I might be intimidated by her overwhelming artsiness, you know? <laughs> like maybe it would be too much. <laughs> and I wouldn't be able to relax and connect with her. Oh, my darling. But then she put one of her incredible masks on you and you would be transformed into the spirit of the tempest. Yeah, maybe. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, you don't have to party with Leonora. That's fine. Um, And then my other one was Walt Whitman. Because, first of all, I think because I just think of him as this kind of pillar of warmth, I guess. And he was somebody who believed in celebrating life. But also, you know, someone with so much wisdom and so much compassion and so much creative energy but I think also in the images I am familiar with of him he just has this twinkle in his eye you know and I imagine Mm. his beard being full of butterflies and I just think that he would be wonderful just a wonderful presence I second that excellent I'm so pleased let's take a break for a second now and we'll be back shortly with our cultural recommendations Hi everyone, we're back for our cultural recommendations and this time we're only going to give you one each because we have already been recording about parties for a really long time. We <laughs> <laughs> let it run away with us. So Carrie, what is your hot tip, your one brilliant cultural recommendation this month? Oh, now I'm stressed out. <laughs> I have one chance. But I am going to recommend the installation and I know this is place specific. So I'm sorry to all our listeners who can't get to London, but I would like to recommend the installation, The Procession, which is currently in the Tate Britain. And it's by an artist named Hugh Locke. This is in the main hall of the Tate Britain, if you can imagine it with all of those columns Mm. and like high ceilings and arches. It's called the Duveen Galleries. And it's there for the rest of the year. It is an absolutely brilliant use of the space. It's this massive parade of these like brilliantly costumed life-size figures and animals and people that are holding banners and walking through the arches of the gallery. Wow. It's incredible, Octavia. I think you'd really like it. It's colorful. It's moving. It's strange. It's funny. 
And it's designed so that you can literally walk around it. There are no barriers or anything. So you kind of process around the procession to look at it. And it's life-size. So you, you kind of feel like you're in the midst of it. And every single figure, I mean, because they've been so lovingly designed, like both the the kind of banners they're holding and the clothes they're wearing and, the, and their positions, I could see myself having spent hours there just looking at every different figure and what they're doing and, and how they're walking and what they're wearing. And Locke, he is Scottish Guianan. And he said that he wanted this to say something about the legacy of Henry Tate, who founded the Tate Galleries, and who was also a sugar magnet. And so a lot of the, the banners and the signs in the procession are, are responding to the often brutal legacies of the sugar trade all over the world, especially in Guyana, where he's from. And it's also just making a really powerful point about protest, procession, and occupation. Yeah. Because these figures and their message are literally occupying this like classical gallery built by a sugar magnet. And it's really powerful. And you reconsider the space as one that is built on violence and extortion in a new way. So it's really cool. I'd recommend you go. The Tate is free. So um, the Tate Britain, get your butt there. If you I will can. do. I absolutely will do. I also love the exhibitions that they put on that space. They're always so interesting. What's your one cultural recommendation this month, Octavia? <laughs> My one hot tip. Well, it's a documentary on Netflix called The Sparks Brothers. And honestly, it's so good. And it was one of those, you know, when you just put something on and you have no expectations and you haven't read about it and it just turns out to be a brilliant, brilliant thing, um, which is always so pleasurable. So ages ago, I recommended on the show a movie called Annette, which was that bonkers musical with Adam Driver. Yeah. Marion which Cotillard. we never watched. Oh, you should definitely watch it. But maybe watch this documentary first, okay? okay? So that movie had Adam Driver, Marion Cotillard, and then they had this daughter that's a puppet. And I remember at the time talking about the music being by this mad duo called Sparks. And I'd heard a little bit of their other stuff, but I didn't really know that much about them. And now, dear listener, I know all about them and they are so cool so the sparks brothers or sparks as they were known as a band or as they are known sorry uh, are the brothers ron male who writes the music and plays the keyboard and then russell male who sings and has this extraordinarily massive vocal range and they are so talented these two human beings and so dedicated to their work it's just really inspiring You've probably heard their music, maybe without knowing who they were. Maybe some of you are diehard fans, but their most famous track is called This Town Ain't Big Enough for the Both of Us, which Russell sings in a wild falsetto. And I think it was made in like the 90s or the 80s, maybe. And they are these genuinely eccentric, extraordinarily original, talented human beings. And the documentary is, it's a love letter to their work, basically, and their career and the tenacity with which they just kept going, even when it wasn't really working out commercially for them. So this documentary is just about their career and about them as people. And it's full of like hilarious, brilliant cameos from all kinds of people, other artists, other writers, other musicians, just fans, people in the industry with them. But it's done in quite an irreverent way to everybody because at the heart of Sparks is this phenomenal irreverence. It's They're very witty and funny, basically, and very odd. You just kind of want to hang out with them, basically, and the documentary you do, you just spend time with them. It kind of left me and John both feeling just extremely inspired to make our work, <laughs> which is a great feeling to just be like, 
I feel validated in doing my silly little job, (laughs) which is trying to make work that might mean something to other people because it can feel very, very listless and lonely and stupid at times. So yeah, watch it. Just watch it. It's glorious. Actually, before I end, I just want to tell you this one, just to give you a sense of what they're like. They did this completely bonkers thing where uh, it was a few years ago, I think, here in London. They did this thing where they played every single one of their 20 studio albums back to back over 20 consecutive nights. And they were not 20 years old when they did this, if you know what I mean. Like this (laughs) happened like in their like 60s, I think. So just extraordinary endurance performance artists, basically. Anyway, watch it, enjoy it. It will make you smile. It's just fab. That sounds really fun. And I'm going to watch it. I also had an idea which is that maybe we should just say the other thing that we were prepared to recommend, but not give a fulsome explanation for it, because I know our listeners are clamoring to know anytime (laughs) we recommend something. Okay, sure. Well, mine was a bit of a cheat because it was just that I went back to the Louise Bourgeois exhibition in its last week, and it was basically just a shout out to going to things twice sometimes because it's so interesting to see what else you notice. I love that. So helpful. Thank you. Thanks, darling. What about yours? <laughs> I was going to recommend the film The Souvenir um, oh, by Joanna okay. Hogg, which yeah. I hadn't seen before and I just watched and it's incredible and I can't wait to watch The Souvenir 2, which just came out. Yeah, I've seen it. I want to talk to you about it, but we're going to do that off air. Sorry, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone's mopping their brow like, thank God. Shut up, ladies. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so that is all the time we have for today. Thank you for listening as ever. Thank you to Daphne Carnesis for editing. Literary Friction is available as a podcast to download on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and to stream on nts.live. You can check us out on Twitter and Instagram. You can also get in touch with us on email, litfriction at gmail.com. If you have a spare minute, please rate and review us on iTunes. It makes a huge difference and helps us reach new listeners. We'll be back in a couple of weeks for a full show. Until then, I'm Octavia Bright with Carrie Plitt. Enjoy the sun. This is Literary Friction. It may not be sunny when people are listening Enjoy to this. Enjoy the sun whenever you get yeah. it. <laughs>